A little announcement here. So you can see that Julie uh, took the kids out and uh, we're blessed to have her and uh, Kelsey also has volunteered and Gina's going to do what she can. But it would be wonderful if we had some more volunteers to go with Julie maybe once a month to uh, just help out with the kids' ministry, okay? Um, We're going to start kicking off the kids' ministry again, which is fantastic. And uh, I think, Kelsey, you've got some curriculum that you want to talk about, don't you? Not here, but with me. Yeah. Um, So uh, if if you want to volunteer once a month and uh, just sit with... uh, with the kids and just offer some support, that would be fantastic. Uh, so see me, see Daryl, uh, see Julie, see somebody, okay? And uh, let's get that sorted out. Okay, prayer requests. A big one is um, Diane here. So tomorrow, early in the morning... She's going in and having that hip replacement, uh, which is a great blessing, obviously, but we need to pray, pray her up, make sure that uh, our prayers are right uh, behind her. So we'll pray for that, that everything goes really well. And for Frank, why are we praying for Frank? Because Frank's a nervous wreck. Okay. So we'll pray for, for Frank to not be as nervy. Um, we'll pray for, for those that are traveling. Uh, the thrifts are traveling, of course. They'll be out for, I think, three weeks. And I think other people are out. And then uh, there's uh, several people out that are sick. Roy has got really bad um, uh, allergies and has just begun to take his allergy medicine, which is, hasn't he? Okay, Uh, so hopefully he'll start to feel better, but he's been staying up at night because he's not been able to breathe very well. Um, And then uh, my crew, they're all feeling sick, so uh, they've got some kind of tummy bug that's going around. Um, And uh, I know there's quite a bit of sickness going around, and as Chris was telling me before the service, you know, a lot of this is because... Of course, you know, they separated us, didn't they, during the pandemic. And so we uh, didn't get the requisite antibodies and so on to fight off these things. But let's pray for all of these things. Any other prayer requests this morning? Yes. Yes. Well, Johnny's doing okay. I'm kind of a little bit surprised to not see him here this morning, actually. Ah. Say no, say no more. Yes, I understand. Okay. Well, tell him that uh, he was mentioned. Okay. But not... Right. Yeah, but we won't say that it, the pills were mentioned, okay? <laughs> he probably doesn't want to know that. Anything else? All right, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness that you watch over us. You think about us all the time. Father, we acknowledge that we do not think about you all the time. And Lord, that's because of sin and that's because of the distractions of the world and of our own natures sometimes. And uh, Lord, if we would just uh, focus on the things of God, the things that really are important, our lives would be much simpler and uh, much less full of uh, trepidation and fear and anxiety. Help your people, Lord, to trust in you fully. We lift up, Lord, those that are traveling, especially the thrifts. We pray that you bless them and be with them and uh, give them rest as well as uh, the ministry opportunities. We ask, Father, that um, you'll be those with those that are sick, uh, with the different tummy bugs and things that are going round, Lord. Bless them and get them over their sickness quickly, Lord. We pray for Diane for your great blessing and your uh, helping hand with the doctors and nurses tomorrow. May everything go really well and uh, be a tremendous blessing. May you uh, also bless her healing. Uh, Bless Roy and uh, any Lord that uh, needs your help right now, your assistance. Um, Thank you that Johnny's doing so much better. And, uh, Lord, we, uh, we acknowledge your goodness in all of this. And we thank you, Father. I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right. If you will turn to the epistle of First Peter. So, as you can see, this is our second sermon in first peter and we're looking at verse two in chapter one let me read the first two verses peter an apostle of jesus christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in pontus galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Our focus is going to be on the second verse this morning. And you notice that word elect. Elect. When we speak about election... We enter into some controversy. What exactly are we elected to? How are Christians elect? And there are different points of view when it comes to this word and its meaning. It's often uh, associated with the word predestined or predestination. And again... We, uh, we need to define our terms uh, when it comes to trying to understand what is meant. Peter is as good as anybody to help us out in this regard, although 
um, there is still some work for us to do to get to a, a, an understanding of what is meant here. Obviously, to elect somebody is to select them. You select them, select them to election. You pick them out. You choose them. Okay? That is the idea of uh, that term. What a person is elected to and when they are elected, that's where all the controversy comes in. And, of course, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to settle this forever, um, but, uh, of course, I can't do that. There are people that will disagree with my uh, position. So I want to set forth the, the three basic positions quickly about the biblical doctrine of election. And uh, please, I'll be watching to make sure you don't fall asleep in the next few minutes while I'm, I'm giving you these alternatives. The first one is that you are elected to salvation. You are elected to salvation. And therefore, that election is God picking you out and choosing to save you and when to save you and by the, uh, the means by which you will be saved. Okay? You get that one? So that's often associated with what is called Calvinism. Okay? So in Calvinism, certain people are elected to salvation and to eternal life and certain people are not. They're passed over. Okay? Because the election is to salvation, to the family of God. And only certain people are elected to the family of God in that point of view. Many good people uh, and great people hold that point of view. Then there is what is called the Arminian position. You don't have to remember these names. The Arminian position, which is named after a uh, a reformer called Arminius, a Dutchman. And this view is that God basically looks down the corridor of time and sees who will believe and elects those people to believe. Uh, oh, sorry, who believe. So that means that the election is not to belief. Do you understand? Because he's looking down to see who will believe. And then he elects them. Nod your head. Okay, you get that one? The first one is he elects them to believe. That's Calvinism. Arminius taught, and John Wesley and people like that, taught that, no, he sees down and sees who will believe, and then he elects those who believe. Okay, that's Arminian. That's the Arminian position. Yeah, Wesley had that position, yes. Now, please understand, before I give you the third position, please understand that both Calvinists and classical Arminians, both of them have a very strong doctrine of sin and of what's called human depravity. Both positions teach very strongly that unless God does something... 
convict you and to bring you in some sense to an understanding of things, you will not believe. Okay? So both positions hold to that view, a very strong position of of our sin. Uh, Paul, in the book of Romans, says that uh, we are at enmity with God. And that word enmity means that we are uh, irreconcilable enemies. Okay? If you have enmity against somebody, then that just means that you, I mean, you have no intention to be reconciled. Okay? You dislike them. You hate them. All right? And without the grace of God, that is where humanity is in regards to God and his righteousness. Now, they might not be against him as a concept. They might say, I love God, meaning God is a concept as long as he stays away and doesn't get involved in my business. But as soon as God gets involved in our business and starts to say, oh, this is how you're to live, and I'm to be first, and you're to be third, and this is right, and what you're doing over here is not right, then you see that enmity starts to come out. All right? So you put a little bit of pressure on people. Uh, You put a little bit of the gospel on people, and you've probably seen this come out with them, okay? They don't like this talk of righteousness, holiness, forgiveness. They think they're good enough. And, of course, the gospel is all about the fact that we're not good enough, which is why Jesus died on the cross for us. Now, both positions teach that, and so does this third position. And this third position is a little bit more complicated, I guess. Um, So if you don't get it, it's fine. Um, it goes by the name of Molinism, okay? And this, this third view, which I tend to gravitate towards, I think it's, uh, it's a, a better view. This view says that God could have made a different history than the one that he made, the one that he upholds. He could have, for example, made it so that Peter, as he was going to witness the trial of Jesus Christ, tripped and broke his ankle and couldn't get to the fire and so therefore couldn't betray Jesus. Do you see that? He could have made a world where that happened. He could have made a world where John was at the fire and not Peter. Is that conceivable? Different set of events happen because God upholds different events. So if he'd have created a world that was uh, had different uh, emphases, uh, different things happened, different weather patterns, different uh, political rulers, some people not you know, reigned longer or not as long as other people and all of these different things, economic factors, All of these different things could have been other than they are. But God chose this history in which we live. Do you see that? Which means that God knew everything that would happen because he chose it. 
but he didn't make it happen. He chose it, but he didn't make it happen. Do you see that? That's where the, you know, you might think, uh, what? But if you get that far, then you start to understand that God can elect people who choose to repent under his um, conviction, under the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people do not repent under conviction of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever seen that? I have seen people physically shake, physically shake under conviction and not give in to God. I do not believe that it was God's will to bring them right to the doorstep but not give them the grace to believe. That goes against everything I see in in Scripture as far as God's bidding. He does not want people to reject him. uh, The idea that we're fulfilling God's will by rejecting Christ seems ridiculous to me and contrary to, to the Scriptures. But in a world that is made to go a certain way, a world in which it is Peter at the fire and it's Peter that denies Christ, that means that some people will believe in Jesus and it means some people are going to be rejectors of Jesus and some people are going to come under great conviction and still reject Jesus. Now, those people that believe in Jesus under that set of circumstances are, f- are foreknown by God. It's not, not just that God looks down the corridor of time and sees that they will believe. God has chosen, because he's chosen that set of circumstances, he's chosen those people to believe. Do you understand that? That's where the difficulty comes in. So if you don't get that, position, that's fine. Uh, You'll probably forget it in five minutes anyway, so that's fine. It only bothers people like me. That's that's Molinism, or called middle knowledge, okay? Middle knowledge. There's more to it, but those are the three basic positions, okay? So, let's, in in light of what I've said, let's have a look at verse 2 here, okay? First thing that Peter points out is that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That Greek word, I don't normally you know, give a bunch of Greek at the pulpit. I don't believe in it. But you've heard of this word. It's called prognosis. Okay? Prognosis. Okay? That means pro, before, gnosis, knowledge. Okay? Foreknowledge, but it's not just bare foreknowledge of like uh, knowing what's going to happen. It's actually being related to what's going to happen. Okay, it's actually knowing because uh, you're there. You you have that in your power. So uh, we're told, for example, that in the book of Jeremiah, God knew Jeremiah before he was born. Okay, and ordained him to be a prophet. That's kind of the idea that we're we're talking about. There's a relationship involved. 
with this. So, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In sanctification, now we've done sanctification, haven't we? We talked about sanctification when we did that sermon series on the sanctified life. Sanctification means that we are set apart to God and away from the world. Christians are not to be in the world, sorry, or rather immersed in the things of the world. They are not to be uh, get their values from the world. They get their values from God and and the Scripture, and that sets them apart. Sets them apart to the to be able to serve God, and sets them apart so that unbelievers can see they're not like them. Far too many Christians are like the world, so the world can't tell them apart. So sanctification is what takes place there. Four, thirdly, obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not just the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, which of course is that which cleanses us from our sins, the price that is paid in order to save us, but obedience. Now, this obedience could either mean belief, it, we obey the gospel by trusting in Jesus Christ, or it could mean not just that, but also obeying God in our daily lives. Both of those things uh, would be just as true as each other. All right. What can be said about this? Well, the first thing I think I need to call your attention to is that um, Peter seems to have put the order backwards. He's inverted it. Look at this. When you, uh, when you think about salvation, you think about what? You think about trusting in Jesus, don't you? That's the first thing, yes? You trust in Jesus and then you are saved. And then the Holy Spirit separates you into the body of Christ. And you are now in Christ, not in Adam. And then you are elect, elected by God into his family or elected into those things which accompany salvation. Peter has turned that on its head and he's put election first and he's put sanctification second and he's put the sprinkling and obedience third. Now, why has he done that? Well, he may have done that uh, just as a, a kind of a literary... T- uh, device to show that it is salvation is God's plan because after all Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the, the foundation of the world the book of Revelation identifies him that way and Peter himself will say something similar so uh, I think that's that's a real possibility it's also maybe that we can see that uh, it, it doesn't, salvation doesn't start with us. Salvation doesn't start with our choice, our decision, and then God catches up with what we've done. Oh, hold on a minute there. Hen- Henry's uh, believed, so we better do something about that. Oh, what do we do? Oh, okay, we've got to sanctify him, and I've got to elect him. Okay, God doesn't operate that way. That's the human way of operating. 
All of this is a package. All of this is ordained by God. So that's the first thing I think we need to uh, call attention to. I mean, here in uh, the second point here, the process of election. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, if you will turn there quickly, we get uh, a passage that uh, I think we need to add into this one. Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Paul writes, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And we might as well go to the next, pass, the next verse. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, this passage shows us that God, before the foundation of the world, had a completed plan in place for human redemption. And also, what would accompany that redemption. You see, we need to understand that being sinners, being enemies of God, Being those who are rebels against God in Adam, we are all under condemnation. That's where the gospel starts. Starts with the bad news before the good news, okay? The good news comes in that God is the kind of God who is gracious, who is uh, merciful, who has pity and compassion upon us. And such is that compassion. Such are the depths of his love that he sends his only begotten son into the world as a human being to die on a Roman cross for all humanity. That was the only way that it could be done. There was another way. Another way would have been, you know, taken. But that excruciating death was what was needed. So, all of this is is in God's plan. And whoever believes in him, Jesus says, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Why? Because they deserve it? No, because... Of who God is, the eternal God, who is eternal good and eternal love, wants to love us eternally. And in order to do that, he's got to save us. And this involves election. It obviously involves election because all of this is prepared before the foundation of the world. It's not ad hoc. It's not God making it up as he goes along. That's what I do. I mean, not with a sermon, but that's what I tend to do with a lot of things in my life. Gina's not here, so 
I can make that admission and uh, hopefully she'll never hear it. All right. So, but, you know, we tend to be like that, yes? Circumstances come in. uh, We have to change our mind or adjust ourselves to certain things that happen. Okay? God doesn't do that. Nothing's going to get in his way. Nothing's going to stop his progress, his plan. And so this has been devised for our good before the foundation of the world. Notice, I'm still in Ephesians here, if you're still with me, that the choosing of verse 4 has to do with us being holy and without blame before him. And the predestination of verse 5 is to adoption. Both of those things are things that happen after salvation. And as I was saying, and I got off track, so I'll get back on track. We, once we got saved, God could save us, which means that we wouldn't go to hell which is a good thing. But it doesn't mean that we would have necessarily all of the benefits that come with believing in Jesus Christ, like adoption, being sons and daughters of God. Talk about a privilege. And being given an inheritance, being given a glorified body, being given eternal life. You see, all of these things are given to us. They're gifts that come to those people who have believed in Jesus. God has added them to this bundle that we call salvation. And these are things that we are predestined to, elected to, according to Paul in Ephesians. Now, people do use Ephesians 1.4 to teach that God chose us to be in Jesus before the foundation of the world, which would mean that we were chosen to be saved. But it doesn't say that he chose us to be. It it says that he chose us in him. So we need to pay attention to the wording uh, of the passage. So back to... Our text in First Peter chapter 1, looking at the process of election, the first thing in our experience is that we trust in Jesus. We obey the gospel. But the first thing in God's experience must be that, and, and uh, this is brought out by Peter and in other places too, must be that God has, in some sense, chosen us. And I think this is a most important truth. If you here are a Christian and you have been given forgiveness and eternal life, it's because God, by his grace, has chosen you. In one of those three ways that I uh, I shared with you at the beginning of the sermon. 
I think that he chose you in the third way. But I'm not going to argue with people that hold to the other two positions. At least not from the pulpit. So, I try not to argue with them outside the pulpit too, but that's sometimes difficult when you get on this thing. But anyway, so, you therefore, please understand this. You might be going through tough times. You might not have everything worked out in your life. You may not have have, uh, met your aspirations. You may not be the person that you wanted to be. And you may not be anybody in the world. If you're saved, God has put his love upon you. He's chosen you. That's the most important thing that can be said about you. And who cares if you're not a billionaire or a pop star or a film star or any of the people that people take notice of, a sports star or whatever. Who cares if you're a nobody in this world? This world's perishing. This world is going to be destroyed. This world and its history is going to cease. And good riddance to it. You, on the other hand, will be somebody in eternity. You're a child of God. And God has set his love on you. He's your father. He chose you and he loves you now. And he's going to make sure that you are with him in his kingdom. You're elect. Now, that view of election should not puff you up. I'm elect, you're not. Okay? (laughs) I've met that, I've met that on occasion. Uh, The first church that I, and I, I need to not waffle, but the first church I ever preached at was a gospel, what's called a gospel standard church in England. And, uh, big old imposing building you go in and it's like entering back in time you know you're in a time machine going back in time and uh, there you are you're back in the 1800s and it's just this musty old building and there's a pump organ that they still use and and all of the old seats and the old pulpit are there and everybody looks as though they came out of the 1800s too okay So that was the first place that I preached, what's called a hyper-Calvinist church. And it, it was made clear to me that I was not to give the gospel offer from the pulpit. Why? Because they believed, now not all Calvinists believe this, but they believed that, and they were called strict and particular Baptists, they believe that God will jolly well call the elect without your help. Okay? And you shouldn't be offering the gospel to people who may not be the elect. So don't give the offer of the gospel. 
But that's the first place uh, that I preach. Now, we don't want to have that idea at all of election. We want to have this idea that, yes, the Holy Spirit did convict us of our sins, that we were illuminated by the truth, that we did repent and change our minds about Jesus and about God and about our sins and about our direction, and that we chose, under that conviction, salvation that was available to us in Christ. God all the time knowing, because he chose this world in which he would make that decision, to happen. So you're elect, and that makes you special. But you're also sanctified by the Spirit of God for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Notice here, Father, Spirit, Son. The work of the Trinity in your salvation. So it's not as if the Trinity is divided in saving you and electing you. You know, in some depictions of the Trinity, especially in those old paintings by the Renaissance, uh, uh, you know, painters, and I love them, but you have Jesus up front, okay, and you have God in the background somewhere, you know, imposing an imposing God in the background, not, you know, Jesus is, is kind of warm and, you know, looks as though he'll shake your hand and embrace you. God in the background, though, he's a bit more, like, off-putting. We shouldn't think about God that way at all. All three persons of the Blessed Trinity have come to you to save you. All right, so how do we define election then um, from these premises? Well, in order to do that, I need to take you to one other scripture, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel. Now notice this. God chose you, now here, here he is talking about salvation, he chose you to, for salvation, but by the instrumentation, if I can use that word, of belief in the truth and sanctification by the Spirit, the setting apart by the Spirit. Now, what this means is that 
as far as I can understand this verse, and I think the, this is the, the proper way to interpret this verse, and it goes with the rest of Paul's teaching, is that um, that choosing for salvation was based upon your belief of the truth and your sanctification of, by the Spirit. In other words, you being put into Christ. Okay? Because these are the instruments by which that choosing to salvation works. But let's not disguise something else that's been going on, something else that's running here. And that is that God in his election has saved you. So that the reason that you came to Jesus Christ in faith doesn't just have to do with your belief in Jesus. It, it, it's also that God, through the Holy Spirit, sent the gospel to you at a certain time, knowing that in that time, in that circumstances, under uh, those convictions of the Spirit and uh, understanding of the Scripture, that you would yield And he knew that you would yield under that circumstance at that time. But he also knew that other people who came under conviction would not yield. Does that make sense? Therefore, the fact that he knew that you yielded and chose a world in which you yielded at that time, at that place, under those circumstances, meant that he chose you. Or you can believe that God looked down the corridors of time, waited for you to believe, and elected you. The problem is that that doesn't seem to be borne out by the weight of these passages. I don't think the Arminian position works as well. The Calvinist position, my problem with that is that once you say that God elected you to salvation uh, and that was all that was involved in it, then you have to say that he elected other people not to salvation. And I don't think that is is borne out by Scripture either. You have to have this position where there's a balance where people have a chance, an opportunity, which is a valid opportunity to accept or reject Jesus. And it's their choice. And it's their responsibility. And God wants all men to come to salvation. But he's not going to force them to love him against their wills. He's going to woo them. He's going to bid them. But it's going to be their choice. Okay. You say, well, Hannibal, you're getting really theological here and get back onto some devotional stuff. What we like to do as, as uh, Christians when we do theology is that we like to deduce very nice, neatly packaged doctrines. And the problem when we do that is very often this peril that I've called attention to many times before, which is that we start functioning independently of what the Bible says. And then 
the doctrine that we make, make up is actually like 50% the Bible and 50% us trying to put things together. We need to understand that we are not given the answers to every question, that there are rough edges that are not explained and that we can only go so far in saying this is what God's doing. But after all is said and done, we must say two or three basic concluding things. One, God's decision is before man's decision. God's decision is always before man's decision. God's decision is an eternal decision, or if you like, it's made before the foundation of the world. He knows what's going to happen. He knows everything, and he upholds everything. And nothing would happen if God wasn't upholding it. Do you see? Moment by moment. And where his power is, his knowledge is. So therefore... Secondly, it was God's decision that you be his son or his daughter. Thirdly, although we should seek to share this good news, although we should seek to acknowledge the election of God humbly, we should also rejoice in it. I mean, you are what you are and you are what you will be because God is who he is. He's your father and he made you his son and his daughter. He adopted you and he wouldn't have adopted you if he hadn't sought you out to save you. So all honor and all glory really does belong to him. You don't give it, you don't get any credit here. All of the glory and all of the honor is to our blessed father. Let's pray. So heavenly father, we acknowledge that we are, if we've trusted in Jesus, we are elect. And in some mysterious sense, we're elect to trust in Jesus. Whatever the mechanics are that are not explained to us in Scripture, we know that these two things are facts. And without these two facts, we would never have come to Jesus. We would have kept going our own way. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to rejoice and take comfort and assurance in this great truth. Help us, Lord, not to see ourselves as some kind of elect or select club. We know, Lord, that it is not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter says that. 
And therefore, Heavenly Father, help us to be used by you in our obedience, in our sanctification, to be lights to a lost world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Paul. That was um, a very good word. And um, the benediction today is out of Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceedingly greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his mighty power.